Hey there, welcome to the Chronic Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Bernemanov. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Tonight, we are very excited to share an episode featuring an interview with Rebatiz Elixin, who is the spokesperson, PR director for Lubavitch. Uh, this is a position that he sees as his shlachas, and we had a wonderful conversation about that shlachas, about being Lubavitch's official media face to the world, the way the media sausage is made, so to speak, and what it takes to maintain relationships and, and put our best foot forward to make a Kedosh Hashem, to help present their Rebbe's message and their Rebbe's vision to the world in the best way possible. So I'm very excited to share that with you coming up very, very soon. Tonight we also have a wonderful milestone to share. We've just crossed the 2000 download mark, which is pretty great. We're farther along than I thought we would be. And I'm just really grateful to you, to the listeners, to anyone who's listened to this and who's shared it and who subscribed. Barashim, the feedback has been wonderful and hearing feedback and knowing that you're out there listening makes this possible, makes it doable, and it gives us hope that the Crown Insider will emerge Hashem reach its goal and hopefully be able to make a meaningful, positive impact in our community. As always, I encourage you, if this is your first time listening to the show, or if you have not yet subscribed to the show, to please subscribe to the show. Find the podcast platform of your choice. There's a lot of variety out there, whether you like the computer, whether you like, you have apps on your phone. And if there's a way that you'd like to listen to the show that you are not currently able to, please shoot us an email at podcast at crownheights.info. As well, of course, please send us your questions, comments, feedback, and concerns to podcast at info so that we can address them. And uh, Mertz as well, if you have questions to put to our guests, we will feature them in a end of the year wrap up episode. So thank you again to those who have already subscribed, to those who have shared feedback. We are very, very grateful. Without much further ado, let's get to our interview with Rabbi Matiz Elixson. We now welcome to the Credits Insider, Rabbi Matiz Elixson. Rabbi Matiz Elixson does public relations PR for Chabad, the Babish community, and he's a spokesperson for Chabad, and we're very excited to have him. Thank you for being here, Mati. So, what does a PR slash spokesperson for Chabad Lubavitch do? It's very similar to what every shliach does, and really every chassid, which is sharing Yiddishkeit and sharing chassidus with the world. We see we see the media, we see the internet, we see social media as, as just another platform to share those ideas. But really what it's about is education and inspiration. Sharing these wellsprings of chassidus and, and these ideas from the Rebbe with, with the world. That's awesome. How did you end up in this position? It's a good question. Maybe it was producing a satire newspaper in yeshiva. Oh, wow. Actually, there, there was, I was on Shlichus as a bacher in Australia, Sydney, Australia. It's a long flight from, <laughs> from the U.S. And I was sitting on one of these flights in the back of the plane in the nosebleed section next to this fellow who seemed very ordinary. And in the course of the flight, we, we began talking and... We were talking about some of his own, his personal life and, and some of the challenges he was facing in his personal life. And turns out that he's a senior writer, I think he still is, for Time magazine. Back in the day when paper, when print actually mattered. Right, when magazines were, you know, important. Exactly. They were prestigious. Yeah, it wasn't just something that you flipped through on, on, a, on a tablet or on a device, but right. it was the pages that you flipped through. Time magazine was was the top of popular magazines, of news magazines. And just sitting there talking to this to this fellow, something struck me that he was so ordinary, right? Dealing with some of the same challenges that all of us face in, in one way or another. And yet when he published something. He wrote an article, 500 words, 800 words, 1,000 words. Millions of people were reading it. And every word that he published had some kind of profound impact on the world. And And what struck me was that we all impact the world around us to various degrees. And we see the impact sometimes in smaller ways. When, you know, we impact... We start with ourselves, people around us, our family, our community, our neighborhood. 
But here was the, this individual who was at the time probably in his 60s writing in a way or publishing in a way that impacted so many people. And the power of, of the press or the media really struck me at that point. And on my way back to, we, I think we were heading to Sydney at the time, I was thinking about how do we harness that, that power, that energy for, for positive things, for, for sharing Yiddishkeit and chassidus. So that was an inspiring moment for you. It was like, okay, I want to do something like this. Use the power of mass media to share, share Torah, share chassidus, share the Rebbe's message. But how does that practically like, how did you practically end up in this position? I, I came back to New York after Schlichus, and I was working at a Maisid in, in Crown Heights, a Chabad Maisid. And I still had that bug in my head about media. And Rabbi Zalman Schmatkin, who, who directs Chabad.org and has been doing this work for far longer than I have, was doing these events with journalists and bring them together around, around Yom Tevim and really creating community uh, for Jewish journalists. And I started getting involved with that with him and eventually offered me a, a position. And uh, the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah. So you work for Chabad.org. That's your... I do. Okay. Yeah. And when I'm assuming your day-to-day... Well, I shouldn't assume. I should ask. What does your day to day look like? Well, there, there are various areas that we we could divide what we do in terms of the, I, for lack of a better word, I guess PR is the word that we would use. Although PR publicity, it's a bit of a dirty word and sure it has connotations to it. But what we could divide it in terms of general things that pertain to that pertain to the Jewish community overall, to Yiddishkeit, things that pertain to Chabad, broadly speaking. And then there are things that that may relate to a specific shliach or a specific community. And we'll work with those communities or those shluchim on, on helping them get their, their message out and sharing the stories, the local stories. But on any given day, it may be maybe dealing with something urgent that comes up, a, a crisis. Crisis could be anything from an incident that takes place on a, on a college campus where there's Chabad and, and the shliach needs to respond to it. It may There may be an inquiry from a journalist that's doing a general story about Jews or, or about Chabad in particular, or we may be promoting something and reaching out to, to men, to various journalists at various outlets and in trying to to share this story with the world. So that's a mess of things. There's some marketing in there. You're pushing a message out. There's some crisis response. What does your approach look like when you're trying to tell a story? Are you looking to find the right journalist? Are you looking to find the right outlet? Are you looking for a specific, just a medium? What's your approach in general? Well, the first thing is defining what the story is and What's the message that's that kernel within that story that you're trying to impart and share? So this year is the year of Hakel, right? That's something the Rebbe, the Rebbe promoted and urged, the idea of achtos around bringing people together around Torah and Mitzvahs in the year of Hakel, and dedicating it to that, to that idea, the idea of Hakel. So we'll be sure to include that in, in all of our narratives of during this year of Hakel. So we'll prepare press material that Shluchim could use and we'll make sure that that's worked in. And you have hundreds of media stories and you could look at this, you could Google it, you could find it, of course. where there are hundreds of media stories this year that report on the special significance that Hanukkah has this year or Purim mm-hmm. or Pesach. People are coming together in this special year of Hakel, or it may be if we're talking about the the war in Ukraine and the incredible work in Messir's Nefesh of the Shluchim in Ukraine for the you know the humanitarian work that they're doing there, 
under under horrible circumstances are you know will will share where their inspiration comes from or they'll share where their inspiration comes from being that it's 120 years since the Rebbe was born there in that in that part of the world so so the first step in in any story any campaign that we're doing is understanding what is our narrative that we want to share and what's the story that that tells that narrative got it that's that's a lot of work but it's also important it, of course. it also is you know the the adage of as long as you spell you know any many, many any publicity things, yeah. is good publicity right. as long as your your name spelled correctly mm-hmm. that's not true <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it may be true for certain purposes but it's not true for us necessarily or, or most people right so the general perception of the jewish community and Lubavitch specifically, Shluchim even more specifically, our institutions, is that is that something that you work to keep track of? Like, how do people see us? What's what's the what's the temperature out there? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, many people tell me they they say, "Oh, you do PR for Chabad. You're doing a great job." Right? <laughs> <laughs> but but the truth is that it's in a way it's it's really easy because people really love Chabad out there. There are so many people connected with Shluchim and, and the Rebbe's Torah and the Rebbe's ideas that inspire so many people out there. And it, it, it's really unfathomable. To, to, it, it, it's hard to grasp how vast this is. So... In, in data, as far as data goes, right, the, it was very easy to say that Chabad doesn't really have much of an impact. And the reason it was easy to say was because there was no data to back it up. So Chabad was sort of on the outside of the establishment, and you have all these institutions that are spending a tremendous amount of funds on collecting data and doing these surveys and reports, and usually the question in these reports would go something like, are you Orthodox or, or any other denomination? And then they'll ask, or they'll ask, are you a member of any of these synagogues right. or which denomination are you a member of? But neither of those questions will capture the experience of a lot of people who interact with and benefit from Chabad, from Ashtiach. Almost all the people. Right? right, Chabad's the place where you find the most diversity in the pews. You'll, it's broadly speaking, the only place that you could go to, and you're likely to find someone who's Hasidic, possibly sitting next to someone who says that they're that they're atheists. Right, and you don't really find that diversity in the Jewish community, at least in religious spaces, outside of Chabad. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, the amount of people who are who are coming to Chabad houses is enormous. So, the Pew Research Institute they they did a survey on American Jews. I think it was seven or eight years ago. Don't they do one like once every like ten years? They do like a big one. Well, they like- they just completed the second one, okay. and what they changed was a question about Chabad. The first question, the first survey had an affiliation question. If you said you were Orthodox, then they asked if you're Hasidic. If you're Hasidic, then Chabad. Right. And you know, when they, when they crafted the survey, they thought that would be the best way of capturing the data, but they realized very quickly that it just didn't work. It was one of the criticisms of the survey, and the, one of the authors of the survey, Alan Cooperman, actually told me that it was one of his regrets not having a Chabad appropriate question. And when they did the second survey, I actually consulted for them on the survey and they made sure to include a participation question as opposed to a membership or affiliation question. And what they found is that 16% of American Jews participate often, or I think it was sometimes, at Chabad. That's astronomical. That's astronomical. But if you add 
the people who chose seldom, right? Which means that there's some engagement, not a lot, but some engagement. It totals 38% of American Jews. That's unreal. That's incredible. It's, it's, and if you, if you think about the Rebbe's impact, right? We, we tend to look at shluchim as, as measuring the Rebbe's impact. But the 38% who are affected in some way by Chabad is only the tip of the iceberg of Jews and society, more broadly speaking, who are impacted by these ideas from the Rebbe, by Shluchim of the Rebbe in the broader sense of, of Shluchim of the Rebbe. The Shliach, the Shliach can changes the broader tenor of a, of a city. It isn't just about whether the person comes to Chabad. Absolutely. If a person sees a menorah on, on the highway, that changes his whole day. That changes his, his relationship with Yiddishkeit. Absolutely. I'm referring to people beyond the ones who are, who are you know, called shluchim in the traditional sense of the word, but someone who learns something from the Rebbe is inspired by it and wants to make a difference and impact other people. But to your point about seeing a shliach, right, or, or the impact that just walking around as a shliach or or putting up a public menorah, what that does, it, it, it's incredible. You know, we're talking today about, a lot of people are talking today about anti-Semitism and how we fight it. And if you think about it, right, all the education around anti-Semitism, what's the solution? Conventional wisdom. What do we teach people about? We teach them to get to know us. Well, that that's usually not what we're doing. We need to do more of that. Right. It's usually Holocaust education. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Or, that, that, that has been the conventional response for a very long time. Right. And all that's built around persecution of the Jews or victimhood. And what we're really not sharing is who we are, how we live, and our contribution to the world, which really is Torah, Torah, mitzvahs, and these ideas that that really shape civilization. That's amazing. That's, that's, when you think about it that way, that's pretty incredible. So you're saying that your job is actually pretty easy as the, as the, <laughs> yes. But, but my point is that with the, you know, with these things that instill Jewish pride, right? Whether it's a shliach walking around in the streets and normalizing the ideas, shliach or shlucha or their children or, um, or a public menorah that's just standing there. Someone walking by, the Rebbe speaks about this, right? The impact that this has. And I think all these things, first of all, the impact that shluchim have, right? The impact that they have on individuals directly through relationships, through educating people. The impact that, that is had through, you know, these, even if there's no direct contact, just walking by a menorah. And what that does in a place like, I don't know, South Dakota, for, for a young Jew to see that in public or in New York City. Right. And, and then there's another layer, which is the impact that people have from, from the, the teachings of the Rebbe, from the Torah of the Rebbe, from the ideas of the Rebbe, and, and the activism and impact of the Rebbe beyond Chabad is, is enormous. And... We the reality is that Chabad's growing, the momentum's with these ideas, and the momentum. We talk about them. You're saying within the like the institutional Jewish space, the way people talk about how to reach out to people, how to, or when you say momentum, in in what sense? You're saying in the larger conversation, in the halls of Jewish institutional power. What do you What do you mean by that? Beyond Jewish institutional, sort of, the Jewish institutional industrial complex, if right. you will, right? Or the establishment, as, as we tend to call them. The reality is that Chabad is where it's at in terms of where the people are, where the Jews are. So many of these, many of these institutions that had a very strong mandate because they actually represented a lot of, a lot of people, right? A lot of Jews, are hollowed out in that regard because the Jews just aren't there where they used to be. Right. And they are in Chabad houses. There was a survey that was done in 
2001 of synagogues in America. And there were two academics who replicated that survey in 2021. So two decades, you're able to see where there's growth and where there's decline or decline. erosion. Yeah. And what they found is that the network of synagogues of Chabad shuls or Chabad houses, Chabad communities or congregations, let's call them, grew by 199%, if I remember correctly. 200% growth. Wow. And today, it's the largest network of congregations in America, of Jewish congregations, that is, of shuls, communities. Wow, I, I was not aware of that. Are most people, are people aware of that, that we're now the biggest shul network in America? That's crazy. Probably not. <laughs> not in their, you know, they, they feel in their kishkas. Right. Right? It's like everywhere you go, there's a Chabad. I think it's uh, Dennis Prager who says the definition of a remote Jewish community is one where there isn't a shliach. But I think it's plain at this point. Like it's something that perhaps is not articulated and it doesn't come to the fore, but it's, but it's there. People, people understand it. That's amazing. So you mentioned an ethos where when you educate people about the Jewish community, about Lubavitch, about Chabad, we're not interested in and we're not talking about victimization. We're trying to show how we live, what life is like, how we inspire, how we grow, the Rebbe's message, sharing the light. You know, that's a, that's a pretty... It's a pretty powerful ethos, but the question is, is how do you apply that to situations, to difficult situations that Shlokom may find themselves in or the communities may find themselves in? Um, how do you help a shliach talk to the media about an incident his community has suffered? How do you talk to the media about it through that lens? You know, a serious attack happens or an anti-Semitic incident happens or a natural disaster happens. What's, how does that approach guide, how does that ethos guide your approach to these situations? I, well, I, I think the answer is that it does guide, right? So, for instance, when we look at, um, at an incident, you, you mentioned an attack. Say right. something happens that... I mean, unfortunately, the, the, there was an awful example in Mumbai a couple, you know, some, yeah. some years ago. So uh, there, was, there was obviously a tremendous amount of media attention put on Lubavitch in that moment, of, in, in that period of time. So... In, in, in a situation like that, how does, how do you, how do you approach it? I think um, the, you know, we look to, to how the Rebbe approached incidents like those, similar ones. And when you look closely at the, at the Rebbe's sechas, right, and the Rebbe's response to many of these things, you, you start discerning um, what appears to be a, a philosophy or an approach to dealing with adversity and dealing with, in particular, bigotry. When it's adversity that's fueled by, by anti-Semitism or any bigotry, for that matter. And I'll get back to the, to the dealing with bigotry. I think that's, that's something, that's its own thing. But when we're talking about an incident, the first thing is not scaring people. And we live in a world where if it bleeds, it leads. And the more spectacular it is, the more, uh, the more viewers tune in. And I think, and, and you know, we, we as people just don't want to look away from these things and we're attracted to them, but I don't think it does any good to anybody to do that. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't report what's going on and people shouldn't be aware and, and educate themselves of what's happening in the world. But, we should be instilling confidence as opposed to fear. And one of the ways that we'll do that in, in communications is we'll start by defining the incident, right? Put it into, lay out the contours, right? Without, without too much hyperbole. And um, the next thing that we'll will put into a statement that relates to an incident is what we're doing about it, how we're responding to it. Are we in touch with the authorities? What are the steps that we're taking? And then, and I think this is the crucial point here, is 
reminding people, especially when someone does something bad to someone else, and there's some kind of incident uh, of violence or, or the sort, is reminding them that, that people are good and people want to do good. And the people in that specific area are generally very good and supportive, right? And reminding people that they have the power to change the reality in their space, wherever they are, and in the world at large by, by taking action, taking concrete action, concrete steps, and doing good things. And I think that message is... Acts of goodness and kindness. Yeah. The, acts the, way, of, the way the Arab was would always talk about how to respond to anything and the way we're going to bring Mashiach. That's a... Absolutely. But it, it's, it's not just inspiring, right? You mentioned bringing light and dispelling darkness, but it's, it's also empowering. When people hear that, it may seem very simple, right? But it has an incredible impact, especially in an environment where everyone's talking about how bad it is and how out of control things are. We're reminding people, no, you could have an impact. You have a real impact and you're able to actually change reality in this, during what seems like this really dark moment. So I know this is, this sounds theoretical, but it's actually very, very practical in how we as Hasidim, as Shluchim, as, as Lubavitch respond to what seems like these horrible incidents taking place all around us. So if I can put it in a, in a practical sense, you're saying that when something bad happens, you focus the attention on how you rebuild and how you grow and how we're going to do even better and how with people's help, things can be even better rather than focusing on the tragedy, focusing on how bad things are, focusing on the devastation. Obviously you have to acknowledge that you have to, you have to, it's reality is reality. Exactly. And, and it's more than acknowledging at times, right? If, if something, um, you need to have compassion. And, and sympathy. And if someone was hurt or someone's hurting, um, you need to acknowledge that and support them, right? That's the Jewish approach. All this is the Jewish approach, right? But is also, is also for us. It helps us heal and helps us grow. So you mentioned a, a few names of people in the media. You mentioned someone from Pew. You mentioned not names, you mentioned people from Time Magazine, newspapers. Those are relationships. Those are people who decisions they make and impressions and biases they have will color the way, what news looks like and what coverage looks like. Because obviously even people who are doing their best to tell the truth, who are working to be honest, who are working to be ethical, everyone has biases and that changes the way they see something. So what does, from the relationship management side of your job, what does that look like? You really hit an important point, right? I think um, one of the most powerful things that we could do, right? And this is across the board. This is in terms of shluchim and, you know, you have people who may be critics of Chabad, but they'll say, well, my, my Chabad rabbi is different, right? <laughs> And where that comes from is that it's the Avas Yisrael, right? The Avas Yisrael is, it's not, a, it's not a means, it's an ends unto itself, but it also creates an opening. And if you think about everything, right? You think about the Rebbe's entire project of, of shluchim and shluchas and, and it really everything, right? It really comes down to Avas Yisrael. Some people say it's Mashiach, right? But even Mashiach is about Avas Yisrael. Right. And the and it's also a means, Avas Yisrael is a means of of or or teaching people, learning Torah. And and Torah also in the broad sense, sharing these ideas from Torah, not just not just learning out of a text, but also making that text come alive. 
is uh, is also through Avas Yisrael. You know, without that Avas Yisrael, without that ingredient, it doesn't really work. I tried to maintain a lot of relationships, a lot of them that focus on learning, that focus on growing in terms of Yiddishkeit with many journalists, some of them also who, who aren't Jews, who, who we have over for, for Shabbos, who um, we, we do programs, holiday programs, we'll visit newsrooms with donuts and menorahs around Hanukkah time, we'll have menorah lightings in, in some of these newsrooms, and also shiurim. Shiurim with some of these journalists individually. Sometimes, uh, you know, in in these spaces, we there's one outlet that used to be a lot bigger, but they're at 770 actually. They're based out of 770, 770 Broadway, <laughs> the Huffington Post, and uh, we had a Tanya Shear there for a long time. Oh wow, really? Uh, yeah. A Would week, not have guessed that. A weekly Shear, a Parsha Shear that was that was running for a while for a long time actually at the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. And the what actually is is really nice is I've been doing this for a few years now. How long have you been doing and it? And <laughs> it's kind of scary to, <laughs> to put a number on it, but um, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> offhand, but somewhere in upward of, of about 16 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's been it's, a while. Yeah, it's been a while. But Doing this really easy job, as you seeing described. some of these, <laughs> seeing some of the people who are at those shiur, right, and seeing where they where they've gone in their careers in journalism, and some of them are are some of the best known names in journalism today, and uh, some of them do speak of the influence that that those relationships had on them in their personal lives. One in particular at the Wall Street Journal where we'd visit with, come before Hanukkah with the donuts and at their job, this was like this new fancy job that they had and uh, here their, their Hasidic friends arrived with donuts at their workplace and in, in News Corp, in the building where, where the Wall Street Journal is, it's really hard to get into that building, right? And you're saying security wise, security wise, if you don't have business there, you're, not getting, you're not getting it. And if you have business there, you're meeting one individual. But it's Chabad, right? So you found a way. We found a way. <laughs> and we'll we'll wander around with donuts, and people will like pull off their their I forget what they're called the like construction ear the phones. Ear. Oh, the, uh, the, the noise, yeah. noise canceling headphones, the, but the, so they'll, uh, like they'll pull it off and they'll be like, how did you get in here? Right. We're like, donut, you have a manure, <laughs> but this individual related how, you know, at first they were a little uncomfortable and then they found that it was all their non-Jewish friends. The joke about the wall street journal editorial page is that it's like the Supreme court, it's Jews and Catholics. <laughs> And um, they loved when, when we'd come there, and we still go there. And it was an educational moment for, for this individual. And, and they spoke about it publicly on a number of occasions, about what it taught them about Jewish pride and the power of Jewish pride, of coming in there with Ga'in Yaakov and being proud of who you are, sharing who you are, and, and teaching others and educating others. And what happens when you do that, when you come in there with that confidence? So you took care to not mention the name of the individual you were just talking about. So I'm leading to a next question. I'm sure there's a lot of careful handling and discretion that goes into your job of making sure that, you know, information goes to the right people at the right times and that people's names who don't want to be quoted don't get quoted. What's... Chabad is, not, is a notoriously um, Hamisha organization. People, everyone knows everyone, everyone knows everything. Notorious has some bad connotations <laughs> to that one. I mean, no, we're a small family. We know each other. Everyone knows everyone else's business. I, I imagine there is some, there's some stress with making sure that, you know, information and, and relationships aren't uh, exploited. exploited or exposed or people don't get their name used incorrectly. I, I don't think that's a conflict, right? I, 
you know, when, first of all, the idea of Chabad being Hamish is actually a New York Times article. There's, Google it, an article by David Brooks. I oh, think wow. the, the headline was The Hamish Line. And uh, he writes about being at a Hillel on campus and how the students were relating to him how they're attracted to Chabad in part because of the Hamish environment there. And so, so that's well known. So we're not, mm -hmm. we're not yeah. like disclosing anything no. here. That's, but I, I think it's just about, you know, life is about having boundaries, right? There's boundaries in, in every part of our life, right? It's not just about Yiddishkeit. It's how you live your life, how your relationships work and, and appreciating that what might be right for you is not necessarily right for the public and having decency and and a little bit at SNES, right? Information for the sharing just for the sake of... of uh, Making yourself look cool. Yeah. Saying, I know this guy, I know this yeah. person. Right, and I think, I think this goes into social media a little of uh, the influencer culture and it's all about me and you're constantly on you know, on display or the celebrity culture, which is, I, I, I don't think it's very Jewish. And so when we're dealing with the media to your question of, yeah, we're all, we're all connected as Hasid famously once said by unzes alt often, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all open by us. I don't, I don't think that refers to, you know, Professional responsibilities or, or outing people or right. put, putting people's names out there. You know, you have decency. And I think in journalism, not yellow journalism, but like legit journalism, there's an appreciation for that. You know, you're not going to publish something just because it's like a good piece of gossip. It's no one's business. Right. People's private lives and, and their own business. You mentioned social media. Social media is a pretty obviously powerful and scary new tool. It, I imagine it also gives you a way to take the temperature on what's going on in relation to the perception of the Jewish community, Lubavitch, and the incidents that are going on. Is there any kind of uh, sort of social media unit within the Chabad PR department that tries to see what's going on and trending topics, figure out what's going on, how, what, what are people saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as far as trends go, as far as interests go, we're looking at all kinds of things all the time, like SEO, like what's, uh, what are people, what are people's interests beyond social media. What are they searching for on Google? What are they searching for? And, and at Chabad.org, we have a tremendous amount of, of content, right? Tyra content straight up. That's, it could be connecting people directly to, to texts, right? To things related to the Parsha, to Rambam, to Chassidus. And, or it could be articles, articles that were written about all kinds of topics. And the, but with social media, we actually have Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone runs our, our social media arm. And it's not just about looking at what people are interested in or, or checking the temperature, although we do that too. It's also about using it as a platform, again, to share Taira, Chassidus, and, and, and the Rebbe, really, with the world. And the only thing that changes is the platform which means the medium changes, the style might change a little, the packaging changes, but ultimately at its core, it's these same ideas. It's Judaism. You know that line, I, you know, it's, it's the economy stupid, right? So <laughs> yes. it's, it's just Yiddishkeit. It's Yiddishkeit. That's yeah. it. Got it. And I, I think also that is at the core of part of, What's so appealing about Chabad to so many millions of people around the world? Because it's simple. We just want to teach you something and connect you with something. Teach you something, but teach you something real. That's real. That's Yiddishkeit. That's Torah. That's not, that's not built off of whatever the zeitgeist is at the moment. That's fleeting. We're talking about something that's timeless. We're talking about something that's from the Ebishter. That's beautiful. 
we've spoken a lot about the opportunities we have to spread light and spread goodness. But unfortunately, sometimes there's what I imagine is a situation where you're more on the defensive, where mm-hmm. a Jewish community, someone associated with Chabad, even a shliach sometimes, is accused of doing something bad, where there's coverage of something, something bad happened, either somebody responsible for it, somebody let it happen, somebody didn't do enough. And it could, obviously there's a thousand different ways it can go. There's personal issues, there's tax problems, there's government problems, there's obviously there's unfortunately been many examples of them. What is your approach in those situations? A story comes up, there's an article, there's a, there's a first rumbling something negative is going to happen. Someone's going to report something bad. What, is, what does your approach look like? Well, the first thing is ascertaining what's an allegation or what, what the facts are, as opposed to the facts. Right. Um, and, and being very honest, right? Honest with ourselves and also honest with the journalists, but really with the public. And we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the public. And we also owe it to the Rebbe to be honest and and if someone does something wrong, right, we don't need to, or, or we can't rationalize it, but we need to acknowledge that, that that's wrong. And, and the reason it's wrong is because Tyra says it's wrong, right? And in doing that, we're using it as a teaching opportunity. And we're, we're also using that opportunity to educate people. And I, I, I think it's dangerous to get very defensive. And if you're just getting defensive when someone does something wrong, you're, you're not really dealing with the problem and that comes through. And we always need to be considering, are we being honest with ourselves and, and really with Abishter? To get a little deeper into this, though, there are some, there's a difference between a journalistic standard of evidence and a terrorist standard of evidence. There's a difference between when someone says something is true, someone says something happened, and you don't necessarily have the ability to ascertain it. You don't necessarily have the investigative resources. So there's obviously judgment calls that have to be made. What are you going to say to the public? What are you going to defend? Well, it depends it all depends on what we're talking about, right? Like <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> halacha, right? Or piske dinim don't come from like shilas and shuvas, farm of, of, of response of, of halachic authorities, right? They're not written in theoretical terms. Right. They're all real questions that people ask. And part of the reason for that is that they're dealing with reality, right? So... We could talk about hypotheticals, which becomes very hard, right? And the reason is because every situation is different. So it all depends. The context always matters. Are we talking about a situation where someone may have done something in a financial realm? Are we talking about something where they may have harmed someone else? Is this some a situation where there's a victim who needs to be supported and protected? Or are we talking about something where there is where it's victimless, right? And all those things, all those things matter and have to be considered and and we need to think about the ramifications of of how we're responding to a situation, whether it's something that's really big that involves a whole the entirety of the Jewish community, or are we talking about a, even where, where it relates to a very small community in, in a somewhat isolated situation? And I'm sure you're not making all these judgment calls yourself. I assume you have people. So can you talk a little bit about that? Who are the people or the kinds of people, if you can't name names, who help guide our community's responses to these situations? Well, there are a number of people that we, that we look to for guidance, usually, you know, depending on the circumstances, whether it relates to halacha or hashkafa or trying to really understand or ascertain what's the Rebbe's approach to, to dealing with a, a specific 
issue or, or incident. And how does that approach interact when these situations involve geopolitics, when there are countries involved, when there are maybe hostile countries involved, when there are countries that have complicated relationships with their Jewish communities and they make an accusation against somebody or there's an unfortunate situation going on. You mentioned consulting with Urbanim, obviously, for issues of halacha. Who do you come? Who do you talk to when it comes to issues of geopolitics? Well, we're not political, right? We're not a political entity. We stay out of politics. We try not to interfere in things that don't relate to to who we are and what we do. Now, geopolitics obviously affects the Jews, and that means that we have an interest in it, but. The we're focused on the welfare of Jews and Jewish life and Jewish communities in all around the world. Um, a shliach in a particular place is focused on the interests of the Jewish community in that particular place. So you know they're not they're not focused on how they are taking, you know, how for, let's back up for a second. Um, they're not focused on another Jewish community while they try to help every Jewish community. Their focus is their Jewish community. So uh, it's not about another person, you know, like deciding, speaking for someone else or, or telling someone else how they should behave, but being in the place that they're in, they understand the nuance, they understand the issues, they understand how the community works, how the country works, and what's in the best interest of the people in that place, in that part of the world. So to use an unfortunately relevant example, how do you cover the situation in Ukraine? Well, very simply put, right? The shluchim in Ukraine are focused on humanitarian work for the people in Ukraine, for the Jewish community or, or anyone else that they're able to help in a humanitarian capacity. So our, our role is to help people, right? Not to fight wars. It's not what we do. And there's militaries, that's their job. Our job is to help people. And um, I think we're mentioning Ukraine. It's incredible the 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 work that the shluchim are doing there, and you have almost almost two hundred shluchim in, or two hundred two hundred families of shluchim across Ukraine, where you know the Rebbe's from. The Rebbe's father was was literally meiser nefesh to. For, for Jewish life in Ukraine and or what's present day Ukraine. And and really the it's Chabad through the Shluchim of the Rebbe, through the Rebbe's through the Rebbe's work that have rebuilt Jewish life there since communism, since the fall fall of the Soviet Union, to the point where they ushered in a golden age for Jewish life over the last 30 years. People don't realize the extent of what's been built there. Jewish, the largest Jewish community center in the world is in Ukraine. The Jewish community of Ukraine before the war was the fifth or sixth largest Jewish community in the world. Wow. It's big. You're talking about like the, the, Lower estimates are 200,000 Jews. These are huge numbers. And the work that, that Shluchim have done there for the last 30 years, also the Maser Snefesh during communism, throughout those, those dark days, but also since the war began there. In its, we're getting to a year since the war began. Some Shluchim who, who never left. Others took people out to safer places, but never stopped worrying about the people who couldn't get out and came back to help them. It's an incredible story of, of heroism and really a story that all Jews 
should be proud of. So uh, that's amazing. That's Lacha and telling that story. Thank you. Going forward. So I just want to finish off with what would you say was your hardest ever day on the job? And what would you say is one of your most proudest, most exciting days on the job? It's a good question. Hardest day uh, was probably November 26, 2008. Uh, someone reached out to me, a friend in the media, called me and just said, check up on your guy in Mumbai. That was, that was all he said. And started Googling and there was nothing, no reports about anything. Then reports started trickling in about a terror attack, but nothing about the Chabad house, not even in um, the area where the Chabad house was. And I started calling the shliach and, or the shluchim there, shliach and the shlucha calling all their numbers, started reaching out to their families to see if they were actually in Mumbai or where they were in Israel with, uh, with their, with, with her family or his family here in, in New York. And, and then reports started coming in about the terror attacks and still not about the Chabad house. And we weren't sure the information that was flowing wasn't, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of clarity. And what we started doing was posting uh, pictures of the shluchim and their names in various languages, including in Urdu and a fellow who, an academic who's originally from, from India, helped us out. And he was in New York, came down to our office and, and started, we, we put their faces out with phone numbers, sent it to all the hospitals in Mumbai, in the area. And... As time went on, we started realizing that the reports were coming in that the target was actually the Chabad house. And we were trying to get reliable information, which was very hard. And at the time, CNN had a local partner. I think it was IBN, which was the local... A TV partner that they had, and there was a reporter who was broadcasting live from outside of the area that the police closed off in Mumbai in front of the Chabad house in Kalaba, in the Kalaba neighborhood. And I reached out to a, to a friend at CNN in Atlanta to get this reporter's cell phone number. And she got me the cell phone number of this reporter, and between reports... We would see these reports and they would report all these fantastic things that they heard that the shluchim are out, right? So I'd call her on her cell phone and just ask her, where did you get this information from? And uh, that particular report, she told me an old man told her that. So we, uh, <laughs> we knew that it was incredible. And ultimately, people from around the world were just calling the shluchim cell phone, when or cell phones when or the, all the phone numbers in the Chabad house, their friends and and families. Once the reports started getting out, and some of them got through, and we had this individual who spoke Urdu. One of the people who got through heard on the other line. Turned out, one of the terrorists who responded with uh, Urdu, Urdu, Urdu. Basically, I only speak Urdu. And we patched them through to my office phone to, to talk to, to uh, this individual. And it was a very dark day. And what was sort of the, the, the ray of light from amidst all this darkness was I, I had the privilege of being at the rededication of the Chabad house. I think it was uh, a year or two later. And while we were there, with uh, there was a Achnasa Sefer with a new Sefer that was brought there. And in walked this individual, his name's Melach, who was there on the phone in our office doing all the translating. I had no idea that, that 
he was back in India or that, that he even had a personal relationship with Gabi and Rifki, which he did, and, and was really a, a beautiful sort of full circle with wow. that. So, and on a happier note, what would yeah. you say are some of the, is one of the best, brightest, happiest days on the job? I mean, there are many happy days on the <laughs> job and bright days on the job. I think one of the most meaningful moments for me was when I, I was working with some Merkis Shluchim. So Merkis Shluchim generally will they'll go to, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be assigned a geographic area. They'll work with, in many cases, and they'll visit towns or, or, or go door to door, right? Finding Jewish people, connecting with them, engaging them, and learning with them and supporting them in any way they can. And I'd, I'd work with some of these groups of, of Merkishlochim and go through all the towns that they're going to be visiting, and set up interviews that they could do either before they get there or while they're there. With like local news outlets? With, uh... Yeah, local newspapers. Some of, these, some of these towns are tiny, right? And in the media directories that we use, you're able to see the circulation of some of these newspapers. So there's, there's sort of this balance that you need to reach. Like, is it worth reaching out? Like, how much time do you have in the day? Right. Is it worth... How low do you go in terms of circulation? Right. right? If, newspaper, if, if newspaper has 120 people, you know. <laughs> subscribers, right. right. It's like, okay, let's move on. Because right. like the, the 30 minutes that it'll take to do all the work to engage with that local, local outlet, you may as well use it on an on a outlet that has a 10,000 right. uh, circulation of 10,000. So there was this one newspaper that I decided not to move on from, even though it was tiny. And that was it. Booked an interview. Shluchim did their interview and never didn't think about it again until about six months later, the Bacharim that were, that were the Merkish Shluchim there, they shared an email they, they received from someone who read that article. And it echoed a lot of the story of the Rebbe or that the Rebbe told about these Bacharim, who I think I think one of them were actually Rabbi Binyamin Klein, who were Merkish Shluchim, who were Merkish Shluchim, or were just walking around with their with their tzitzis out, and someone saw them from the window, and it it was incredibly impactful to them, and those Bacharim thought that they didn't have an impact, and it really transformed this person's life just just by walking in the street, and they wrote to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe was sharing this. And getting that email that echoed some of those some of those ideas were was incredibly inspiring and meaningful to me. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for your time, Rabbi Zelikson. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, much hatzlacha with your work. Thank you, Shalom. A lot of hatzlacha with this podcast and all your work. And thank you for having me. My biggest pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Rabbi Zelikson for coming on the show. As somebody who's always been interested in media and fascinated with the way the news comes together, was always interested in the way different organizations and people work to sort of shape the way the world sees them and the organization and their mission. To hear somebody explain how one can go about sharing the story of Lubavitch, sharing the story of the Rebbe, sharing the story of Yiddishkeit, and sharing the way we can bring light into the world and encouraging others and inspiring others. And the way we can do that positively and honestly and ethically, that was a fascinating conversation for me. And I really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. As always, if you have questions for Rabbi Zelikson, please shoot us an email and hopefully he'll be able to answer that question in the wrap-up episode of season one. We are already halfway through the season, so that episode will be coming very, very soon. So thank you again to those who have already been on board, who've already subscribed, who've already shared who've already commented, who've already joined in whatever way. We really appreciate you. Goodbye for now, and looking forward to seeing you again next Wednesday, Mertz Hashem. <laughs>